Why don't we start with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. We're going to be covering Samuel this morning, as you can see. So gives you a little bit of a sense of where we're at in the class. There will not be discipleship class next week, or because something's going on. I can't remember what it is, but uh, Christmas, and then the following Sunday is New Year's Day. So I think we're gonna we're not going to have discipleship classes either of those weeks, and then we'll we'll resume. Um, the, the following Sunday in January. So why don't we pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We praise you and glorify you as our great God and our Redeemer. We thank you for sending Jesus to redeem us. Thank you for his perfect life as our representative, the second Adam. Thank you for his substitutionary and atoning death as our sacrifice, and we thank you for his resurrection in the body and his ascension to heaven as our great high priest who ever lives to intercede for us and our reigning king who will one day return and make all things right. Lord, help us this morning to focus our hearts upon Christ, upon the gospel, to tune our hearts to listen to the scriptures to your word and we pray that you would feed our souls nourish us and strengthen us with the truths of the bible please help us to grow spiritually we ask and most importantly above all that we would grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our lord jesus christ bless our time in the book of samuel especially open this book up to us rather open our hearts to understand it and to receive its teaching and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to talk about First and Second Samuel today. And just, I want to start with a few introductory things. We're going to move, hopefully, quickly through this first part. But we don't know who the author is. Again, I would suggest that probably the author of Samuel is a prophet. I did want to just point out, there's a text, Second uh, Chronicles... 929 because I've mentioned uh, before that although some of these books are anonymous there is reason to believe that it would have been prophets who wrote them uh, in second chronicles 929 the the chronicler says this he says now the rest of the acts of Solomon from first to last are they not written in the history of Nathan the prophet and in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite, and in the visions of Edo the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Now, the point of that is that he mentions three sources, right? And two of them explicitly, he says, are written, well, all three of them are written by a prophet, Nathan, Ahijah, and Edo. And you don't really know, those aren't like the typical writing prophets whose books we have in the Bible. Um, we don't know exactly who they are, but we see that they, uh, as prophets, wrote books that contained even history and that the chronicler was aware of them and seems to have referenced those books. And so, even though we don't know who wrote many of the books of the Old Testament, there's reason to believe that they were written by prophets under the inspiration of the Lord. And so, just wanted to throw that out there to kind of give you a sense, if you had not come across those verses of, how we might understand how these books were written. Uh, the date of First and Second Samuel, the author wrote this book, perhaps utilizing sources that existed beforehand, much like the ones that I mentioned in that verse. But in terms of the final composition of these books, obviously it occurred after David's death. I mean, they talk about the whole history of the Davidic monarchy, at least to the point when David took the census. So I, says, so I guess you could say, perhaps, toward the end of David's reign they were written, but probably after his death. But how long after David they were written, you know, we don't know. But there's no reason to push them out exorbitantly far. Uh, perhaps they were written fairly soon after the reign of David. Or even, as I mentioned, even perhaps toward the end of his reign, while he was still alive. But we're not exactly sure. In terms of the unity of the book, I did want to mention that if you were to read the original Hebrew text, it wouldn't be First and Second Samuel, it would just be one book, Samuel. It was really when 
the Hebrew text was translated into Greek and what we call the Septuagint, which is what that little marker uh, signifies, that they were separated. So we know them as First and Second Samuel, but in the Hebrew Bible they would have just been Samuel. And then finally, um, the recipients, obviously the nation of Israel, these were old covenant scriptures given to the old covenant people of God. And these are this book, like many of the ones we've already seen, is what you call historical narrative. Now, I wanted to say something about the historicity, just throwing nuggets like this in at on occasion. There have been many archaeological discoveries confirming the historicity of various details recorded in the books of First and Second Samuel. And you would expect that because David is a major figure that when you begin to do archaeological work in the region of Jerusalem and in Judea and the nation in the, the land of Palestine, that you would hope to find some evidence of David. And indeed we find evidence of a lot of the things, the details in the books of first and second Samuel. Just a few things. One, they actually have found ancient slingshots. You can Google it and find like a picture. Now I'm not saying it was David's slingshot, but just the historicity that, yeah, they, that would have been a detail that would have made sense in that day. The city of Gath, it's interesting that they actually found the city of Gath and they found names that entomologically were related to the name Goliath, which is an interesting detail. Not to say that they found the name Goliath inscribed anywhere, but the whole idea of the city of Gath and the idea of a man named Goliath, we found archaeological evidence that would support that. Uh, the cities of Hebron and Geshur have been found and excavated. King David himself, this is one of the most remarkable discoveries, is an inscription on a, on a tablet where in Hebrew there's a reference to the house of David. And so evidence archaeologically of his existence, of his dynasty. And then also David's palace in Jerusalem has been found and excavated. So the point being that we have good reason to sort of affirm, besides the fact that uh, we know that these are in the inspired word of God, as we have done the discipline of, as the discipline of modern archaeology has unfolded, there's good evidence supporting the details of a book like this. So I just want to throw that out there for your, for your interest, and there's much more that you could uh, research in that regard. First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. Let's just think of this book and its place in the Old Testament. Where does it fit? First, it's obvious that First and Second Samuel picks up the storyline of the Bible beginning at the end of the Judges period, and then it ends amid the reign of David. So that's where it's situated in terms of the storyline of the Old Testament. In terms of what this book does, it explains the origin of the monarchy in Israel, how it went from um, the time of the judges where there was no king to the time when there was actually a kingdom of Israel. It also explains the rise of King David and of the Davidic dynasty, which then plays out in the rest of the history of Israel. Next, it's clearly continuing the story that was begun in the Pentateuch. So, for instance, in Deuteronomy 17, the author actually predicts a time when Israel would appoint a king like the nations, and then the author and then God says through Moses that they were to appoint a man of God's own choosing, and then it gives instructions as to how how that king was to conduct himself. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you have the unfolding of that, that Israel did ask for a king like the nations, and then God chose a king for them in David. Deuteronomy chapter 12 predicted that God would give them rest in Canaan and that he would choose a dwelling place for himself there. And in 2 Samuel 7, which is the famous passage where God gives that great promise to David, we call it the Davidic covenant, the passage starts with saying that God had given them rest, just like from their enemies, just like Deuteronomy 12 said, and that God was going to raise up a descendant of David who would build a house for his name, which was what Deuteronomy had predicted. They'd settle in the land and God would choose a place where his presence would dwell. And so we see 2 Samuel picking up and showing the fulfillment of these events, these 
events that were anticipated in the book of Deuteronomy. So there's a clear connection with the Pentateuch written by Moses. And then finally, 1 Samuel, obviously it's a book that is separate from the book of Judges, but it naturally fits after the book of Judges because it's picking up the story at that point. And the way that you know that is that Samuel is described as the last of the judges. Like he judged Israel. So there's a clear continuity between Samuel and the judges period. So if we look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel is grown at this point. It's toward the end of of the story about him in the book. But it says Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And so you have... That's the language of the book of Judges, right? There was a series of judges, who, and they judged Israel for a certain period of time. And so here we see, ah, First and Second Samuel is picking up the story of that point, and Samuel himself is the last of the judges. So we're seeing the, the sunset of the judges period, and the beginning of a new period in Israel, the period of the monarchy uh, in the book of Samuel. And also, there's a clear thematic connection, because you remember that, in the last um, five chapters of the book of Judges, there was that repeated refrain. Do you remember what it was? What did it say? There was no king. Yeah, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Four times that's mentioned, right? And, and two of the times it adds, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, implying that this sort of moral and spiritual chaos that erupted in the Judges period was somehow connected to a result of the fact that there was no king. Well, First and Second Samuel is answering that, right? And, and, provi- and showing the time when God did provide a king for Israel. And the answer is not in Saul, but in David and in David's son. So there's a clear connection there as well. Not only is Samuel the last of the judges, but the whole book of Samuel is sort of answering that repeated refrain at the end of the book of Judges. So now Ruth obviously fits in there as well, but Ruth, you know, sort of takes place during the Judges period and tells a complementary story. First and second Samuel sort of picking up at the end of the Judges and taking you forward in the Bible's storyline. Okay, any questions to this point before we jump into the an outline of the book and look at what's in it? Well, let's dive in and sort of move through the outline fairly quickly, because I want to talk about the teaching of the book uh, a little bit more extensively. Um, First, we have this opening section, chapters 1 through 7, that's focusing on Samuel. He's the last judge of Israel. And in this section, we see that we see Samuel's birth. So, first we have God raising up one last judge in Samuel. We see his birth, and we see the song of Hannah, his mother, We see judgment pronounced on the house of Eli, who was the priest at that time, and his sons, because of their wickedness and sin. And at the very same time, even as the house of Eli is being judged and being pushed off the scene because of their wickedness, the Lord is raising up this boy, Samuel, to be a prophet in Israel and to to labor in the house of God. Now, in the next section, chapters 4 through 7 of 1 Samuel... We see the last cycle. You remember I talked about the cycle of the judges period? They worship idols. God gives them over into the hands of their enemy. They raise up a judge to deliver them. And then for a period of time, there's peace. And then they do it all over again. Well, what we're seeing here is sort of the last cycle of the judges period. Israel is defeated by the Philistines. And the Ark is captured. So they have fallen away into idolatry again. They're under the boot of the Philistines and they are defeated by the Philistines in battle. And and the worst of all is that the Ark itself is captured. Um, Do you remember the son of one of... uh, So one of Eli's sons had a wife and she gave birth when the Ark was captured and the child was named. You remember? Ichabod. Which means the glory has departed, right? So it's this dramatic... Event that finally it's gotten so low that the ark itself has been captured. Of course, you can't capture God or his ark. And so the ark sort of 
wreaks havoc, God wreaks havoc upon the Philistines such that eventually they send the ark back to Israel and um, Samuel ends up leading Israel to return to the Lord at that point. There's this scene where the Israelites come to Samuel and he says, hey, if you really want to return, well then turn back to the Lord. And he's, this is a time of sort of national repentance that's going on. So this is the first section, Samuel 1 through 7. And then we have a section that might be titled Saul. This is when Israel demands from Samuel a king. They want a king, and particularly, they want a king like the rest of the nations have. And so Samuel, 1 Samuel 8 through 15 is all about this king named Saul. So Israel, in chapter 8 through 12, Israel demands a king and God gives him Saul. But it's key that you see that this is not a king of God's choosing. It is true that God does select Saul for them. But he selects Saul for them as the king that they wanted. They had said, we want a king like the rest of the nations. And he says, okay, here you go. And he gave them Saul, right? And so... Saul does some good things, especially in the beginning. He delivers Israel from the Ammonites at Jabesh Gilead. And then he begins his sort of battles against the Philistines. Um, And in chapter 12, you see that Samuel charges Israel and charges Saul, their king, to obey the Lord. Now, when you get to the next section, chapters 13 to 15, this is the section where God rejects Saul for his disobedience, rejects him as king. And we have an incident of disobedience uh, in chapter 13. And Samuel says, that's it, God's going to take the kingdom away from you for your disobedience. And then we have a great victory over the Philistines. But it's not instigated by Saul. Do you remember who it was? Well, I put it up there. It's instigated by Jonathan, Saul's son, instead of Saul, right? So... Already you see Saul again on the decline. And then chapter 15, we have Saul disobeying God again. And we have that that famous text where Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice, right? Because Saul had, had offered a sacrifice. He hadn't waited for Samuel to get there. And this was sort of the end of the line for Saul. It's the famous scene where he, as Samuel's walking away, Saul grabs his robe, his garment, and it rips. And Samuel turns and says, God's going to tear the kingdom away from you and give it to another of his choosing. So this is sort of the the place where we see Saul's kingship is rejected. It's not that Saul disappears from the story. It's just that this is a place where his his reign is rejected by God and God is going to turn to appoint another king. So that brings us to David. And uh, in 1 Samuel 16 through 13... We, this narrative turns to sort of focus upon David. And David is the king that God chooses for Israel. So Israel had wanted a king like the nations. God had given them Saul. He'd rejected Saul because he was disobedient. And now God's going to give Israel a king of his choosing, right? His anointed. And that's where David comes in. So in the rest of 1 Samuel, we see in chapters 16 through 20, David's anointing as Israel's next king. So in chapter 16, God sends Samuel to anoint David. And you have the famous scene where he goes through all the brothers. And then finally, he's like, do you don't have any more sons? And oh yeah, I have one last son. So the unexpected youngest son of of Jesse is anointed. Then you have the scene of David and Goliath, where David sort of emerges on the scene through his, his mighty victory over Goliath. And then Saul becomes jealous of David in chapter 18 after initially welcoming David into his sort of group. And then Saul tries to kill David so that David has to flee from Saul. And from that point on, David is on the run until Saul dies. And in verse chapter 20, you have this covenant between Jonathan, Saul's son, and David. And with Jonathan sort of pledges fealty to David and asked that David also give loyalty to him, that he would not wipe out Jonathan's descendants. But what is the significance of of Jonathan's action there? Sort of 
covenanting with David and saying that, basically pledging his loyalty to David, what would be the significance of that? Why would that be an unusual thing? Because he's going against his dad. Right, he's going against his dad. But even more than that, what did Jonathan represent? The heir to Saul's dynasty. And yet here he is, pledging his loyalty to David. He's recognizing that David is God's anointed, right? And so it's an interesting uh, event. And he even recognizes the fact that his dad is right. not following what God is, right. has asked. Yeah, so David, Saul has what, or Jonathan has what Saul doesn't, this faith in God and loyalty to God. So the rest of 1 Samuel, 21 through 31, is really focusing on David being on the run from Saul. We see immediately, initially he flees to Gath, and you have this sort of comical scene where he has the sword of Goliath (laughs) attached to his belt, and yet he's in Gath, and you're thinking, David, what are you doing? And he pretends to be insane to spare his life, and but he ends up finding refuge in, in Gath for a period of time, comes back. David is on the run from Saul in Israel. David spares Saul's life um, when the Lord gave him into his hands, or he could have taken Saul's life, but he refused to do so. Then you have uh, David marry- finding his first wife, Abigail, and marrying her. Uh, chapters 26 and 27, David spares Saul again, but he reaches that point where he's like, if I stay here... I'm going to die. And so he flees to Philistia, and he sort of becomes part of the administration of the Philistine king. He becomes the bodyguard of the king, he and his men. And, and there's this climactic point where you think the, Saul, the Philistines are going to go attack Israel, and David is joining them. And you think, oh no, like this would be the end of any chance that David would have of becoming king of Israel if he fights against Israel with the Philistines. But then in God's providence, David is rejected by the Philistine you know, commanders, and he doesn't fight against Israel. And in this battle, Saul and Jonathan die. And so it's the end of Saul's reign, and that leads you into 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is, again, focus on David, but... As the, as the king that God chose for Israel, but now we're focusing upon David's reign. Okay, so the first four chapters, David becomes king, but only over Judah. Now, why would he become king just over Judah? What's David's relation to Judah? That's his tribe, right? So, first the men of Judah appoint him as king. But Saul's son Ishbosheth is king in the north. And so, there's a tension, and the kingdom is not united yet. Um, but eventually, Abner becomes disaffected with Ishbosheth and offers to defect and to basically hand the kingdom over to David. But then Joab kills Abner because Joab doesn't want Abner taking his place. And, and then finally, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, is killed by his own servants. And that sort of spells the end of Saul's kingdom. And the beginning of what would become the united kingdom under David's rule. So in chapters 5 through 24, and I'm really sort of squishing a lot into the, you know this section here. David becomes king over all Israel and Jerusalem, chapter 5. David brings the ark of God because it had been, after it came back from the Philistines, it had stayed in the house of a man named Obed-Edom, or actually... Yes, it it ends up in the house of Obed-Edom. Finally, David brings it up into Jerusalem. And then the next chapter, chapter 7, is sort of climactic chapter in the book where where God gives that famous promise to David to basically uh, make David's house into an eternal dynasty, you know, where one of David's descendants, his kingdom would be established forever, right? So that's what's later called the Davidic covenant that God made with David. And it would really shape the storyline of the rest of the Bible. You know, for instance, the prophets would again and again be referring back to that covenant with David and and the descendant of David that was coming. So essentially, that promise is a messianic promise because the Messiah is David's son, David's greater son, or 
like David was God's anointed, he would be God's anointed, except he would be God's anointed, right? Capital A, like the ultimate anointed one. In fact, that's what the word Messiah means. In Hebrew, it's anointed one. So the Messiah would be a greater king than David, a greater anointed than David who is coming. And it's all flowing out of this promise here. After the Davidic covenant, you have a section where David subdues all the surrounding nations in battle. And then you have, of course, the great turn in the narrative where David commits this terrible sin with Bathsheba, where he commits adultery with her and then kills her husband, Uriah. And then after that, the rest of this section here, 12 through 20, is really the fallout from that, the consequences from that. The story of Amnon and Tamar, and then the rebellion of his son Absalom. And then the rest of the book, chapters 21 through 24, contain an assortment of David's final feats in battle, as well as uh, a final failure when he conducts this census that ends up bringing judgment on Israel. And the last chapter of the book is about that final failure. Now, this brings us to just consider... What does this book teach us? What is it all about? What is, what's the sort of teaching of First and Second Samuel? Well, there's a lot of things we could say here. But one of the things that you come away with in the book of Samuel is that God's people are taught that they need a king. They need a king to lead them in righteousness so that they might experience peace, right? And so David, what makes him great is not that he is a mighty king. Not just that he's a king mighty in battle, right? That is one thing. He does deliver them from their enemies. But what is it that makes David truly great in comparison to Saul? Man after God's own heart. Man after God's own heart. And then his heart for God is manifested in his life, right? So he often demonstrates wisdom in skill, in leading the nation. He often demonstrates his righteousness, that he's going to do what's right, not just what's expedient, right? And he's a a king who leads the, the nation in covenant faithfulness to God, right? So as Moses, as the Lord had prescribed through Moses back in Deuteronomy, he was a king who was going to look to God's law and seek to lead the nation in righteousness. And if he led the nation in righteousness, what would be the result? Because you have those two ways. Disobedience leads to cursing. Obedience leads to blessing. So he would be a king who, because of his heart for God, would lead the nation in covenant fidelity, resulting in shalom, peace, blessing. And so that is something that had been anticipated in the book of Judges, right? Because that repeated refrain. We saw the book of Judges says Israel was declined spiritually into spiritual chaos. And they declined morally into moral chaos. And then the author says there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They didn't do what God wanted them to do. They didn't obey the covenant. They did whatever they wanted to do. And they needed a king. Well... First and Second Samuel provide the answer to that. Yeah, you do need a king. You need God's king, God's anointed. A king after God's own heart who will lead you in righteousness resulting in peace and blessing. So that's one thing that you come away with in the book of First and Second Samuel. Another thing is it teaches God's people that, well, this is kind of what I was just saying, that they need a king after God's own heart. Not a king. They didn't need a king like the rest of the nations had. So the whole contrast between Saul and David is instructive. Saul gave, or God gave them Saul for a reason. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they had said, Give us a king to judge us. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And God knew that's not what they needed. They didn't need a king like Pharaoh or Ashurbanipal or any of these other nations. They needed a, a different king. So he gave them Saul to give them, a, to give them what they wanted, but to show them that this isn't what they needed. <laughs> Saul didn't lead them in righteousness, and he didn't lead them into blessing, therefore. 
They needed a king of God's choosing, a king after God's own heart. And so this is uh, one of the things that God himself says in the book, 1 Samuel 13, chapter 13, verse 14 says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people. Because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so there's Saul and David sort of teach God's covenant people that they need a king of God's choosing, God's anointed, who would lead them in righteousness because he'd be a man after God's own heart. And along these lines, it teaches that there's a real emphasis upon the fact that they need a king who would trust God and obey God. And I point this out because when you look at Saul, his biggest failure was that he didn't trust God and instead trusted in his own wisdom, and that led to him disobeying God repeatedly. So in a couple of texts here, I just read it, but 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 and 14, it says of Saul, You have done foolishly, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. And then at, in chapter 15, in a similar way, Um, verses 19 through 25, you have this section where Samuel rebukes Saul, and it says, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord has sent me. I've brought Agag the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. In other words, I, I've obeyed. It was the people's fault. And Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And see, all of this is teaching you of what you need. You need a king who would obey the voice of the Lord, right? And Saul wasn't it. Rather, David is it. And in fact, not only... Do you see this in the narrative of 1 Samuel, right, where it talks about Samuel being a man after God's own heart? But you also see it come out strongly in David's Psalms. So think of Psalm 19, which David wrote, and you say, this is, this is the king that we need. Saul didn't listen to the word of the Lord. He disobeyed God. But David could say, he could talk about, I'm picking up in verse 7 of Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is a great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You see, this is the king that Israel needed. King after God's own heart, who loved God's law, who obeyed God's law, because that would lead to peace for Israel. And then finally, it teaches God's people that they needed a better king than David, right? Because it's interesting that you get to the end, so when David is raised up, you remember that you've had these prophecies in Israel's history, going back to the Pentateuch, right? At the end of the book of Genesis, do you remember that Jacob had prophesied over each of his sons? And he, when he prophesied over Judah, he said, ah, you know, a scepter is going to not depart from your house, until 
he comes to whom it belongs. So it was a promise of a king arising out of the line of Judah. Uh, in Numbers, when in the oracles of Balaam, there was another prophecy of a king coming out of the tribe of Judah. So there was already this sort of expectation of some great king to come out of the tribe of Judah. So when David arises, you think, if you're living in that point in history, you might think, this is it, right? This is the great king out of the line of Judah. And in fact, he was, in a sense, a fulfillment of that, except you get to 2 Samuel 11, where he commits adultery and murder, and you realize, oh no, this, this can't be the, the, the king the, that we need, ultimately. And in fact, the books of First and Second Samuel, they end in chapter 24. If you turn to chapter 24, what do you have? What does your little heading in Second Samuel 24 say? David's census. David's census. And what's the next heading in your book say? The Lord's judgment of David's sin. So the book ends with a sort of final failure of David. So you, you think that David is it, but really you just realize, no, David's not it. He, he's, he's something of what we need. He embodies something of the king that we need. But really he's, he's just that. He, he's like a shadow pointing to what we need, but not himself the final king that we need. And of course, that's to be expected because God had actually promised to David that he would raise up a descendant from his own body and he would establish his kingdom forever. And of course, the next king is who you think that is, right? And there's a sense in which he is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. He did build a house for God's name, Solomon. But by the time you get to the end of Solomon's reign, what happens? He too takes a nosedive. So it's got to be another king who will reign forever and whose kingdom will never end. And so there's a sense in which the book of 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, leaves you with the understanding that, okay, we know what kind of king we need, and David wasn't quite it. That's sort of a message that you end up with. Also, it teaches God's people to expect, then, a future king to come from David's descendants, who would be like David, but better. And this is where the anticipation, the hope of Messiah comes from. Um, So turn, if you will, to 2 Samuel 7, and let's look more closely at this promise that God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7. I just want to highlight, I've, I've written them up there, but I want to highlight a few things that it says about this coming king. 2 Samuel 7, let's read verses 12 through 16. God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, when you hear that promise, you see some things. You see that there is going to be an initial fulfillment in Solomon. Now, how is it that you know that at least initially it's fulfilled in Solomon? And it's not just purely about the coming Messiah. How do you know? What from the text indicates that? You should build a house for my name. Okay, and you know that Solomon did build a temple. But what else? When he commits iniquity. Right. See, okay, well, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, the stripes of the sons of men. So you know, okay, there's an initial fulfillment of this Davidic promise in um, Solomon. But how do you know that it can't be just Solomon. Doesn't it say that he would come after David's death? Uh, someone that. I don't know how to say that. Well, he would come after David's death, and Solomon would become king after David's death, but. But he would be born after David's death. Yeah, yeah. Establish his throne forever. Right. Yeah. So, 
the establishing of his throne forever. Uh, D.A. Carson, I remember, has put it this way. He says, there's only really two ways that this could be fulfilled. You know, the house of David and his kingdom being made sure forever. Either it could mean a a never-ending succession of sons, right? Or it could be one descendant who reigns forever, right? (laughs) Who never dies. And so you see an anticipation of of the Messiah in this promise, even though there's an initial fulfillment with Solomon. He's going to be a descendant of David. He's going to be God's king. He's going to build God a temple. Which, by the way, when you think about Jesus, did Jesus build a temple, so to speak? He was the temple. See, the Bible, the New Testament talks about him being the cornerstone of a temple being built up. And so there's a sense in which that promise did foreshadow something that Jesus would do as well. It'd be a greater temple. And then God, he would reign forever. And we also see that he, there would be a father-son relationship. I will be a father to him. He shall be a son to me. And so we have being taught in First and Second Samuel, of course, if you're reading it initially, you wouldn't understand the full implications of all these things. But you have this teaching to God's people to expect a king from David's descendants who would be like David, but better. And ultimately, this is the hope of the Messiah. And then next, we see that the Messiah was foreshadowed by David. So, I think that, and this is something that maybe we have to be more careful with, but I, I do think that David provides a pattern in his life and in his psalms that provides a foreshadowing of what the Messiah would be like. So, for instance, David wasn't, he was not the king, a king that, he had a, he had a low beginning, right? Do you remember? Saul goes to his house, he sees Eliab, and he's like, oh, surely this is the one. And he had to go through all David's sons, and then finally call David in from the field, because he was the youngest of the sons. So he wasn't, he wasn't great in the eyes of men. He wasn't the type of person that a hum- that we would have chosen, but he had a but he was God's choice. And why was he God's choice? You remember what God told Samuel? He said, Samuel, don't look on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. And that would foreshadow Jesus because Jesus was born in a stable, in a backwater, you know, town behind the scenes of history. He wasn't someone that any of human beings thought would be, you know, God's Messiah. He certainly wasn't who Israel thought God, the Messiah would be, but he was God's choice. And, and Jesus was, like David, but perfectly, a man after God's own heart who trusted and obeyed God perfectly. Interestingly, that David spent a period of time having been anointed by God as king, but rejected by his people. And that too, I think, was a, a harbinger. David was a righteous sufferer. In fact, many of his psalms have that theme. He was, he was righteous, but he was suffering as a result of it. So that many of the psalms of David actually find their ultimate expression in the life of Jesus, who is the ultimate righteous sufferer. In fact, there's times when David seems to be speaking about his own experience in a psalm, like Psalm 22, but then clearly speaks beyond his own experience to the, an experience of one of his descendants, you know, the Messiah. Like in Psalm 22, where you look at Psalm 22 and you say, well, some of this can only be fulfilled in Jesus. But David prefigured that in his own suffering as God's anointed and as a righteous uh, sufferer. And then also, when you, I think it is significant that David had a following, a remnant of people that followed him, but they were a little bit of a sketchy bunch, weren't they? <laughs> of course, he did have his mighty men, but when you hear the description of those who came to David, especially when he was at the, at the cave of Adullam, you know, it was people who were sort of outcasts and vagabonds in society. An, in other words, an unlikely remnant who became his mighty men who established his kingdom. I think there's a sense in which you see that too hinted at what the Messiah would be like, where you know, his initial followers weren't exactly the movers and shakers in Israel, were they? And yet they became the foundation stones of the church. 
And also it's interesting that among David's mighty men, over and over again, you hear of the Cherethites. Benaiah was sort of the leader of the Cherethites. And it's interesting that if there's at least one passage in Scripture that indicates that the Cherethites, Cherethites were actually Philistines. So that some of David's you know, inner circle mighty men were actually not even Israelites. So that too is interesting that among his remnant, he had both men of Israel and also those that were outside of Israel that had joined him. And then eventually, and that too of course would be true of Jesus, and eventually you have, though he suffered and was persecuted and rejected by his people for a period of time during the reign of Saul, yet God sovereignly raised him up as king. And of course that too would be true of Jesus. All right, so I'm, I'm just arguing that there's a sense in which David's own experience in his life foreshadowed and prefigured something of what, Jesus's, of what Jesus the Messiah would be like. And then finally, First and Second Samuel in the New Testament. How do we see First and Second Samuel? What's the relationship between First and Second Samuel and the New Testament scriptures? Well, before we get to the New Testament, in your Bibles, moving into the New Testament, you're reading through the prophets. And over and over again, the prophets refer back to David and especially to the Davidic promise and this hope of a descendant of David. And they clarify more and more about who this descendant of David would be, what this Messiah would be like, so that by the time you get to the New Testament, you actually have a clearer picture of who this descendant of David would be. So just a few examples of this. You have Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, because after all, David himself was a prophet, and he did have uh, psalms in which he foretold what the Messiah would be like. That's Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand and tell him, make your enemies your footstool. And in that psalm, it's also said that he would be a priest as well, after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 2, we have... Um, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give to you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession, and you will rule over them as a rod of iron and break them as a potter's vessel. And so you have this picture that David's son would not only reign forever over Israel, but over the nations, right? And indeed he would be not just king, but priest before God and forever. So you have David himself prophesying about the Messiah. You have in Isaiah that he would be born of a virgin and that he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. In Isaiah 9, you have that he would be a child who would also somehow be God. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he shall be called. Right? And then you have that one striking, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, mighty God, a child who would also be God and who would reign over the house of David forever. And What does Isaiah 9 say where he would come from? Out of Galilee, of the Gentiles. So you have even more clarity of who he would be. And then in the Psalms, like Psalm 16, Psalm 22, these great lament Psalms, you have a description that he would be be a righteous man but would suffer. Zechariah 12 says that he would be pierced through. And uh, Zechariah 13 says that he would be a shepherd, but the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered. So you have this scene that he would be righteous, but he would also suffer at the hands of his own people. And then, of course, you have that he would be a righteous branch. Uh, The prophecy of Jeremiah, I will raise up a righteous branch. And he's described as reigning over God's people with wisdom and with justice. We have in Ezekiel 34 this great oracle which says, where God surveys the situation of his people, he describes the leaders in Israel as being shepherds. His people are the sheep, the leaders are the shepherds. And he just denounces the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel. You know, you're terrible shepherds, you abuse my sheep, you kill the sheep, you eat them. You know, he's, he describes them as the worst shepherds. And then he says, that's it. Time is coming when I will step in and shepherd my people, right? I will gather the flock. I will bind up their wounds. I will be a good shepherd of them. And then he says, I will set my servant David over them and he will shepherd them. So 
David's long gone, right? By the time of Ezekiel. This is David's descendant, and he would be a shepherd who would lead God's people. Well, you remember John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, right? So we see here a, a prophecy of Jesus, that the descendant of David would be the shepherd whom God appoints over his people. And then, finally, I'll just point out one more, but Micah chapter 5 actually tells you where he would be born. Do you remember Micah's prophecy? It's a remarkable prophecy. He says, But you, O Bethlehem and Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So there you actually see that he's going to be born in Bethlehem, right? And he's going to be set over God's people and rule over them and establish perfect peace, except this is way more than David and his kingdom in Palestine. It says, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So, we see a lot that's revealed about Jesus in the prophets. And then you come to the New Testament. And I always say this about the New Testament. When you, when you come to Matthew, right, and you open up Matthew, and you open up Mark and Luke and John, you are supposed to, like, hear trumpets in the background, you know, you know, this is it. He's here, right? The, the, the long-awaited Messiah. The God's anointed. He's come, right? And so you have, for instance, and I just, this is, you know, sort of the classic text. We're coming up on Christmas, so let's just look at least to this one text. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. Angel Gabriel's talking to Mary. Just think of this, what the angel is saying in light of this history. In light of 1st and 2nd Samuel, and then 2nd Samuel 7, and the unfolding of this promise in the prophets. It says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. By the way, where does that language of Son of God in connection with the Messiah, do you remember Second Samuel 7? I will be a father to him. He should be a son to me. He will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, this is, this is it. This is what you're supposed to come away with. And you read... You know the great genealogies at the beginning of Matthew or in Luke chapter 3, and you see that his lineage is traced through, you know, uh, David. And also, by the way, because we've been studying the Old Testament, also back to Abraham, because he would be the, the seed of Abraham, who would inherit the promise and bring blessing to the earth. And also, Luke traces him all the way back to Adam, right? Because he would also be the descendant of Adam, who would crush the head of the serpent. So, the seed of Adam, the seed of Abraham, and now the seed of David who would be the great king, who would lead and rule God's people in perfect righteousness, resulting in peace or shalom for the people of God. And somehow, his kingdom would be eternal and universal. He would reign to the ends of the earth, and he would reign forever. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So you see, the New Testament is the great announcement accompanied by trumpet blasts and angels from heaven saying, glory to God, it's happened, he's provided it. So when you come to Christmas morning and you think of why is this such a joyful time? It's because it's the long-awaited hope come to pass, to fulfillment. All right, well, that's the end. Did anyone have any questions before I close this in prayer that you want to follow up with or comment? Yeah. It has always struck me, if you were just going through... Uh, emphasized it even more, where you can, where you traced all of those scriptures that are pointing to Christ. Right. How blind the Jews were mm. when Christ came. Right. It's like 
right. we obviously didn't know yeah. the Torah and, and the Psalms of David. Right. Well, you know, they, yeah. they heard them, but they just paid no attention, just like we do, right. of why it was being said. Yeah, which is interesting because, you know, the same happened with David, right? He was God's anointed, but he was he was actually hated by his own people and and despised and for a period of time rejected and only a few were loyal to him, you know. Um, you come to Jesus and you have the same thing, right? Yeah. One big thing that I noticed between David and Saul, when Samuel would go to Saul and say, you can't do this. You know, this was wrong for you to have done. Uh, like you said on that one, he said, well, it, I, it wasn't me, it was the people. Right. <laughs> when Nathan went to, to David yeah. and just told him that story about the sheep that had been taken. Yeah. And then said, yeah. You are that that person. are the man. Yeah. He was crushed. Right. He realized then right. that yeah, how wrong he had been. Right. And right. yeah, he was different from Saul in that regard. Yes. He repented. But I think to your point, you know, this is you know, sure sheds light on the depravity of human nature, and that apart from. Christ coming along like he did with a blind man and opening blind eyes or opening deaf ears, right? We cannot see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We can't see who he is. And, and Jesus himself said that. He said, Blessed are you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and you have revealed them to babes. You know, No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So there's a Left to ourselves, we're in darkness. We can't see the light, even though the light is right there. It's so bright, but we can't see it unless our eyes are open. And so there's a sovereignty to salvation that God must give us eyes to see, must give us ears to hear. And Jesus was always saying, you know, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, right? Um, yeah, Keith. I was kind of stuck back uh, in the beginning, you said, for Samuel, um, how part of their issue was surrounded by the attributed to that that didn't have a king. And right. then in Samuel 8, I attributed the kingship to be more like uh, in the wilderness when they asked for, hey, give us some meat. God says, okay, I'll, I'll give you some meat. You want some meat? Here it comes. Right. And it wasn't really a good thing, but he turned it into something good. So with the kingship, they asked for a king, but God said, you're re- not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me as king. So yeah. it seems like the best yeah, structure I think, is to have God as king in right. the first place, not right. a human as a king, and he gave them the type of king they wanted and then gave them the type of king that followed after his leadership right. style. Yeah, there's a somewhat of a difficulty in interpreting what's going on there. I, I think that the the issue was that they were asking for a king like the nations. In other words, the type of king they were asking for was a rejection of God as their king because they were wanting a king like all the other nations. They were focused on the wrong things. They did need a king, but they needed a king who would be... that that wouldn't lead them to reject God as their king, right? A king who would lead them to embrace God's lordship. Now... David was a king after God's own heart. He would lead them in obedience to God. But ultimately what they got in Jesus was a king who was God, right? A Davidic king who was a seed of David, but who was also the word become flesh and dwelt among us. And so there's a sense in which they converge, don't they, in Jesus. In Jesus, you don't reject God as king. You get a human king, but you don't reject God as king because the human king is God, right? Um, and David somehow prefigured that, that by embracing David, you weren't rejecting God as king. Because David was going to lead you in obedience to God. Because when he described the, the reasons or the bad things that could happen as a result of having a human king, the human king would take their kids and, and do all kinds of stuff right. and build their own kingdom instead of right. God's kingdom. Right. Yeah, and that's why when you look back at Deuteronomy and it says... You shall appoint a king over yourself of my choosing. And then he says, what this king shall do. 
And notice what he says there is, he won't do these things, which by the way, when you read the list of things he wasn't supposed to do, guess what, everything, they were all things that Solomon did. Multiply wives and amass horses and chariots for yourself. But instead, he was to take the law of God and read it every day so that he might obey God's law. So the human king was to lead God's people in covenant fidelity to God so that the human king would recognize the ultimate kingship of God. And in Jesus, there's this convergence, right? (laughs) Because he is God come in the flesh. So it would be kind of nice if our leadership did the same. Oh, man. (laughs) Well, and I often think about this in my prayers, you guys, as I grieve over what is going on in our country. And, you know, you you hope for the election of a certain person, and you're like, and then that, that person turns out to be a schmuck too, and... No one's perfect, and there's always just mess. And you think, God, our only hope of peace is the rule of Christ, the righteous rule of Christ, right? And that's what we're hoping for. When He comes, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, He will establish, He will rule over the world in perfect righteousness, which will result in perfect peace. That's what we need. That's our only hope, you know. It's not to say we turn a blind eye to elections and our responsibilities as citizens in this country, but it's that we recognize our only hope is the return of the king. <laughs> right? So, let's pray, because I'm over time here, but it's a great, it's a good question, and there are some difficulties there, Keith, that, uh, different ways of interpreting it, that's how I understand it, but, alright, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for First and Second Samuel and our time Reflecting upon it this morning, we pray that you would nourish our souls spiritually through your word, that you would give us understanding through it, wisdom through it, that you would teach us to understand the Bible better as we study it in this sort of overview way, and that you would, above it all, that you would impress upon us the glory of Christ in a fresh way, and that we would grow in our knowledge of Him and in our, our love and adoration for Him and in our hope, our hope of His that we have in His present rule at Your right hand and our hope of His coming in glory to, as the book of Revelation says, in that day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. We long for that. Your kingdom come. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.